So good morning. How's everybody doing? First things first, uh, I always want to tell you guys you've done a really good job. Um, I think it must have been a month ago that we talked about Children's Church and being sure we're getting our kids ready to go and ready to be, come and be respectful and also talk to you teachers about uh, tightening things up and things have just been really good over the past month, so good job. I've talked to the teachers. I even went back there myself when Ben was preaching because who wants to listen to Ben preach? You need an excuse to... No, it's, it's a great sermon. But I wanted to go back and see for myself and all the kids were there just sitting on the carpet squares and listening. And it was really sweet. And so you guys have done a good job with that. That's all I wanted to say. So keep it up. Keep up the good work. It is February. And February is a month of fail. How's everybody been? Failing? Feel it, right? Yeah. February is a hard month. About the only good thing about it is it's Amanda's birthday. That doesn't count as one of the good reasons. <laughs> huh? Oh, yeah, oh, we've got babies now. That's right, yeah. Valentine's Day? Valentine's Day, everybody's favorite holiday. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It's the most depressing month of the year, and so it's a time of a lot of just, uh, right? Has everybody been feeling that? Everybody been kind of, uh, or is everybody like, no, February's great, everything's great, I'm so happy. Anna's like, every month is a great month, every day is a great day. Every day in every way, my life gets better and better. I guess if we were all married to Bart, we'd all feel that way, but. <laughs> I want to imagine that was David Jones amening that instead of Bart, but. Ah, <laughs> oh, February, finances, family. There's a lot of pressure that we've all been feeling, right? A lot of pressure, a lot of ways we've all been feeling pressure, just the darkness of everything. Although things are starting to warm up, today's going to be a nice day. It's a good day to get outside, good day to take the kids somewhere. Um, but how many of you have been feeling with February and with just like winter and darkness, just a lot of pressure, and then added to that the increasing uh, financial strain that it seems like everybody is feeling across the board? You all been feeling that? I've been feeling that. I, was, I had a pretty bad day yesterday. Um, I feel that pressure. And some of you guys know that I run a multimedia ministry, right? You kind of know that, kind of aware of that. Um, well, I do, and it's uh, responsible for part of my income and all of Nathan's income and part of Ben's income. And there are other pastors that look uh, to that multimedia ministry for income to support them in the work of their churches that they participate in. And we've been having a hard time, and uh, we didn't hit our fundraising goals at the end of last year. And I'm, I lead it, I founded it, I'm responsible for it. And so I carry the weight of making sure it thrives and succeeds so that everybody can get paid, so that the work of these churches and this church can be supported by Nathan and Ben and even myself, right? So I carry that weight. And so I spent the last two months just, you know, working out plans for how to solve the problem. And uh, 
uh, on Friday, I narrowed it down to the plan I want to move forward with. And yesterday morning, I had a three-hour conversation with somebody who's like, I don't like the plan. In fact, I don't like the, uh, the plan so much, I'd rather just burn the ministry to the ground. <laughs> I'd just rather it blow up. This is a three-hour-long conversation, and that's not what's going to happen. But that was a hard conversation to have. And so I left from there just really just, not just discouraged or depressed, but just angry. And so it's like, that was my morning, and I was supposed to be sermon prepping, but I'm there for like over three hours just on the phone, right, at Starbucks, of all places. And so I'm just like, I'm going to leave, I'm going to go home, I'm going to get some lunch, I'm going to hang out with the kids, maybe shoot some hoops in in the driveway, something like that. So I do, I go home and I get some lunch and I go out to play some ball in the driveway with a couple kids. And then I realize that the kids have broken part of the basketball goal. And it's like a $250 to $300 piece of the basketball goal. And so I just like, I just, I lost it. Took the kids inside and let them have it. Let them know I thought they were disrespectful and ungrateful. And then I realized what I was doing and I went for a walk. Just left, went for a walk. Knew what was going on in me. Knew it wasn't about the kids, it was about me. It was about all these other pressures. I go for a walk. And I'm calming down, getting myself under control. And on the way back from my walk, Amanda comes driving up and rolls down the window and is like, I'm gonna test the brakes and show you that the brakes are screeching. See, here's another problem. Remember how last summer you had to replace the brakes and rotors and it cost $1,500? That problem's back. And I'm just like, please just leave. Leave me alone. <laughs> leave me alone. Why does that happen? Why does that sort of thing happen to us? All of us, right? Not just me. I may be worse than you, but you're, you still kind of stink too. Right. On a small scale, that happens because my job's to lead and to provide, right? For everybody that I'm responsible for, for my family, and also for the men who work underneath me and depend on me. And when we hit up against those places in our lives where it feels like, man, this is a responsibility I have and I feel powerless to fulfill it. Man, nothing makes a man more angry than that, more frustrated. What are you supposed to do? We're made to work. We're made to solve these problems. We're made to provide. And then we hit up against the thorns and thistles and the futility of this world. And what are you supposed to do? You just get angry. You get angry. And all of us feel that pressure. And a lot of problems in our marriages would be solved simply by recognizing the fact that we live in a world where that pressure is increasing on all of us. It's increasing on all of your husband's wives, and they're feeling it. He feels responsible for providing because he is. And he feels alone because he is. And he feels pressure because it's there and it's real. 
And he doesn't need to be reminded of it because he feels it, and he doesn't need to be nagged about it because he feels it. What he needs is to be helped and to feel there's some gratitude and respect for the work that he gives himself to. And on the flip side of that coin, as men, we just have to wear it. We have to own it. Money problems expose our family to the world. Self-control problems expose our families to us. And our job is to protect our families from both. We don't get to feel sorry for ourselves. We don't get to be full of self-pity. It's not the kind of thing that you take out on your family. It's the kind of thing that you have to deal with, but you have to recognize and connect the dots when you're tempted to do it. You have to deal with your heart before God and get back to work. So that's the micro, small scale reason, right? That's why this sort of thing happens. This is how it works in our hearts. There's also a bigger picture reason. And the bigger picture reason is that there's this stubborn reality, and that's that even though we have died to sin, it still lives in us. It still lives in our hearts. And we have to constantly be dealing with it and fighting it. And so this morning, we start Romans chapter 7. And it is the classic chapter. It is the chapter on dealing with the sin that lives in all of our hearts. And so that's where we're going to be. And we've been working up to it. Everything that we have read and studied so far, even going all the way back to September, has been building up to this chapter. And that's going to continue to build. But it's all part of the same case that he's made from the beginning. And I don't want us to lose the big picture, so I want to step back and I want us to see the big picture. The leading line of what he's been unpacking for us is right there in Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. This is all we've been talking about. And when we read it here, when we read it here, you'll see it. If you've been with us through Romans, it'll mean more to you now than it did then. You'll see how rich it is. Okay, but let's look at it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, that's, that's all we've talked about, isn't it? We've just been talking about that for, what, six months, five months now? That's all we've been talking about. We're going to keep talking about it. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And he explains it, and he starts with the problem, right? What's the problem? The problem is the wrath of God is revealed against us because we're not righteous. We're not righteous. And then he opens up through Romans 1 and 2. There are three levels to our sin and our unrighteousness, right? We start with our rebellion, our outright rebellion against God. We know deep down that God is God. We know that He exists. We know that He's powerful. We see it everywhere, and we reject it. We suppress the truth. We exchange the glory of God for a lie, for images. Instead of honoring God as God and giving thanks to Him with gratitude, we spit in His face. And so He gives us over to our sinful desires. 
So there's rebellion. And then there's hypocrisy. If any of us think we're better than outright rebels, guess what? That just makes us hypocrites. That makes us worse. Because we all sin in all the same ways as the rebels, we're just better at hiding it. We're better at hiding it. We're better at pretending. We've got our rebellion, we've got our hypocrisy, and then we have our self-righteousness. And that's where he begins talking about God's law. And what he says is, look, if you think that you own God's law, if you call yourself a Jew or a Christian, and you claim you've got God's law, and you think that that's going to save you, you better think again, because if you're under the law, you're going to be judged by the law. And you can't stand up under that judgment. You can't do it. Because if you've broken God's law on the least bit, you've broken the whole of it, and you'll be judged by the whole of it. You can't measure up. You can't stand under that judgment. So in every way we turn, we're caught. We're cornered. We're going to be rebels? Well, okay, we're just going to be judged. We're going to be hypocrites? Well, that's worse. You think you're going to be self-righteous? You're going to create a righteousness of you? No, no. You'll be judged by the standard of God's perfect law that you claim to be upholding. We have no righteousness of our own. We can't get one from the law itself. And it's not because the law is bad. It's because we are. It's because we are. The law shows us the perfect character of God, and it shows us our sin, and it judges us. And that's why Paul says, you don't need to be circumcised outwardly like the law prescribes. What you need is to have your heart circumcised. You need to be born again. You need to be changed and transformed from the inside out because you can't be righteous on your own. You need a better righteousness. You need one that's given to you. You don't have it, and you can't manufacture it. And so that's what Romans 3, 4, and 5 are all about, the righteousness we receive by faith. Jesus came. Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience to God's law on our behalf. He suffered. He died. He bore the punishment that we deserve on the cross so that we can be declared righteous, justified. Now, I know that's a lot, but that's all we've been studying, right, since September So then we come to Romans chapter 5, and now we're ramping up to this week's passage. And this is what he says. You're basically, there there are only two camps. There are only two teams in this world. You're either team Adam or you're team Jesus. You're in Adam or you're in Christ. That's it. One or the other. If you're in Adam, you're under the reign of sin, and the fruit of sin is death. And if you're in Jesus, you're under the reign of grace, and the fruit of grace is eternal life. Every one of us is born in Adam. We start in Adam. That's where we begin. And our inheritance is death. Those of us who have been saved have been reborn into Jesus by the Spirit of God, born again, and the inheritance is eternal life. Beginning to change our lives begins with understanding that God has already changed us. So the next question is, what comes next? He begins to answer, answer it, and he says, well, if you have been saved, then you must continue to be saved. If you've been saved from the guilt and condemnation of sin, now you must be saved from the power of sin in your life. 
One day you will be saved from its presence. God will wipe it away from you and from the world. But now we live in the middle, in the tension. And the Christian life is a life of conforming our hearts and our lives and our reality to the fact that God has already made us new. He's already washed us. So beginning to change and transform our lives, understand, it begins with understanding that God's already changed and transformed us. So then he has three explanations for that change that has happened in the life of the believer. Three big pictures, what it means to be born again, how it's transformative. The first is in chapter 6. It's death and resurrection. That's the picture. The death and resurrection of our souls. The explanation is you died spiritually and you were resurrected spiritually. We have died with Christ and been raised up spiritually. And if we have died with Christ and been raised spiritually, we, when we die, we will be raised physically. There is a death and a resurrection. We had this life over here under the reign of sin. We were alive to sin and dead to God. And God stepped in and said, no, you will die to sin and you will be raised to newness of life. Resurrected. And that's what baptism represents. The death to our old selves and our resurrection to newness of life by the Spirit of God. We've been changed. We've been transformed. We are not what we once were. The old man has been crucified and is dead with Christ. There's a new man. New nature, new desires, spiritual desires, a love for God and a love for His Word and a love for the things of God. And if that's true, if I've died to sin, I've been set free from it. And so then that's the next explanation that he gives. So we have death and resurrection. Next one, slavery, slave and free. To be under the reign of sin and law is to be a slave of unrighteousness, a slave to sin. Jesus set us free from sin. He set us free from the law. He set us free from its guilt and its condemnation so that we can be free to live righteously. We're free to present ourselves as slaves of righteousness to masters. A master mastered by sin and death, mastered by grace and righteousness. So, death to life, slave to free. Now this week he introduces a third picture and it's a marriage covenant. Let's read it and we'll study it together. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are, re- <clears throat> but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, so let's talk about marriage for a minute. Marriage is a covenant. It's a covenant. And we have to understand that to understand what he's saying here. It's a lifelong binding covenant between two people. When you got married, you made vows in the sight of God and in the presence of witnesses. And one of those vows was, for better or worse, until death do we part. And that's because that's how marriage was made to work, as a covenant. In our world, in our culture, we have devalued marriage and we've turned it into a contract. An agreement between two people on paper. And if we just agree to change the terms of the contract, no big deal. We're mutually agreed to change the terms of the contract. Dispense with it. But that's not how marriage works. It's not how a covenant works. Because a covenant is made in the sight of God, it's permanent. And to violate that covenant, there are consequences. And covenants typically can only be broken by death. So if you get married and you go live with somebody else, you are an adulterer. You're a covenant breaker. That's not a lawful way to live. Now, once someone's broken the covenant that way, then divorce becomes lawful. But that's not how it's made to be. Death is the only thing that really should break a covenant. If your husband or your wife dies, you're free to remarry. You're no longer bound. And that's what he's saying. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she's free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Now, this is important because Paul is explaining how radical the transformation that we've had is. And he's coming around to it again for the third time. That's how important it is for us to understand. We've moved from death to life. We've moved from one master to another. And now he says, okay, let's talk about marriage. You were part of a covenant. It's like you were married to the law of God. But you couldn't keep the law, so you were an adulterer, but you were still trapped and condemned with nowhere to go. Caught. But when Jesus died on the cross, you died with him. And since you're dead, you're free from that covenant, the old covenant, what theologians call the covenant of works, the need to perfectly obey God's law. And you're united with Christ in a new covenant. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. You died to the law so that you may belong to another, to Jesus, so that you can bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. This is a, we're still talking about marriage here. 
You were in an unholy marriage. Your passions were aroused and you acted on them. And they were pregnant with death. That's what he's saying. While you were under the law, while you were living in the flesh, as he calls it, your sinful passions were aroused and you bore fruit for death. It's still a marriage analogy. It's not my analogy, it's God's. It's holy. But you understand what he's saying. But now you've been released from the law, having died to it with Christ. So you serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, meaning in Christ you have the Spirit of God and you have a relationship with God now. And that means you have spiritual power. God's law isn't lifeless for you anymore. It's not just a written code you have to try to begrudgingly follow and fail at. You've been set free by the Spirit of God to walk in a new way. Okay, so Paul's now come at this three different times in three different ways. He said, you were dead, now you're alive. You were baptized into death, crucified with Christ, and raised to newness of life. He said, you were a slave, now you're free. You had an old master who hated you. Now you have a new master who loves you, your father in heaven. Your old master still wants you. Don't submit yourself to him. Don't present yourself to him. Present yourself to God. Now he's turning to the marriage covenant, and he's saying, you were under an old covenant, and now you're under a new one. When you enter marriage, you enter into a covenant. You're united with one another until death separates you, and that's God's design. So we start in this explanation married to the law, in a covenant relationship to the law of God, a covenant of works, a covenant that operates in an if-then sort of way. If you do this, then you shall live. If you do not obey, if you do not do this, then you will die. Adam was in a covenant of works, an if-then relationship. If you do not eat of this tree, you will live. If you do, you will die. Adam disobeyed. And so all of us are born under the covenant of works, married to God's law in an if-then relationship. If we obey it perfectly, then we will live. And we, every one of us, have disobeyed, and so we're headed to death. But we're married to the law. We can't get out. It's a binding covenant. The only way out is death. And so it's going to be our own death and then judgment, unless it's the death of another. And what Paul is saying is that because Jesus died, having perfectly fulfilled the law, and because we've been united with Jesus in his death, we're no longer obligated to the covenant of works, to the law. We're not married to it anymore. We're no longer in an if-then relationship with God. There's a new covenant. It is a covenant of grace. And all of the ifs are fulfilled in Jesus. We're no longer under sin and guilt and condemnation. We're under grace. There is no if-then. There's no, he loves me, he loves me not. There's a covenant of grace, and it's not conditional on your obedience. It's conditional on Jesus' Jesus's obedience, which he fulfilled perfectly on your behalf. And it's conditioned on his perfect sacrifice. And it's all over and it's finished. It's done for you. Living under God's law is like living in a bad marriage. 
Living under grace is like living in a good marriage. Living under law is like living in a bad marriage ruled by fear and guilt and shame and control and manipulation tactics. That's why we work through the rebellion, hypocrisy, self-righteousness stages, and they cycle all the way back around. It's fear, guilt, control, manipulation, manipulating ourselves, whipping ourselves until we break and then we rebel again. It's like living in a bad marriage. You can't measure up, you feel bad, you're just always trying and never quite getting there, you're always being punished and you're always punishing yourself for falling short. To the sinner, the law demands perfection and it offers no power. Demands perfection and it gives no help. It just says this is the standard and you don't measure up. You fail. Keep trying, I guess. Got nothing for you. You somehow have to get up here and you can't. It sucks to be you. No power and no help, like a bad husband or a bad wife. Some of you are like this in your marriage because this is how you think of your relationship to God. You demand perfection and you offer nothing but condemnation, guilt and shame. Some of you are like this as parents because this is how you see God. And God's not your father, sin and the law are. And you don't know how to please them or measure up except sin, guilt, shame, hypocrisy, hiding. Motivate yourself with guilt and shame. Try to manipulate and control and bottle things up and, until they explode. And so then you turn around and that's how you treat your wife, that's how you treat your husband, that's how you treat your kids. It's how you engage the world. Every failure as a parent, every mistake carries the same moral weight as a sin because you are a law dad or a law mom. There's no space to breathe because there's no grace. There's only condemnation and guilt and shame and fear and control because that's all the power that the law can give us. That's all that we're working with. That's all it has. And it's not enough. There's nothing of grace. There's no faith for it. If we live under the law, it breaks us and it breaks everyone else around us. We become rebels because we know we can't live up to it, so why try? Just think about it. Are you tempted to just be a rebel? Are you tempted to give up in your marriage? Is that you? Are you tempted to just leave or divorce your husband or your wife or go commit adultery? Some of you are like, well, no, but I have been tempted to murder him. <laughs> Some of you have, you've been tempted to give up and stop trying, to stop trying to live with any kind of self-control. Stop trying to obey God's commands to love your wife or honor your husband. You've been tempted to just give up or to just stop trying to love and discipline your kids and have a well-ordered home, just accommodate them. It's a rebellion. That's what that is. 
Okay, if not rebellion, then what? Hypocrisy? We become hypocrites because we just want to get good at hiding. All our sins are in secret in the dark. Put on a good face. We go through the motions. On the outside, we're a respectful wife or a loving husband. Inside, we cultivate a totally different inner life. Cold and dead. Or maybe we just have our own sort of inner world to ourselves that we keep while we keep our shields up. Our smile on our face. Every smile concealing a dagger. If not rebels, if not hypocrites, then what? Well, then judgmental jerks, right? We can't figure out how to... We don't want to be rebels, and we can't figure out how to have a perfect righteousness. The next best thing is to have a relative righteousness, so long as we're better than the next person, so long as we can find a way of posturing ourselves as better than everybody else. That'll be okay. We'll be okay. We throw the law out altogether. Nothing we do has anything to do with God or how we measure up against God, but against everybody else around us. And then we always have a couple key big places in our lives where we've made huge sacrifices that tell us we really are the best. We really are better because we have this place in our lives where we've done the harder thing, the thing that we count to be harder than everybody else around us. We, we've hit this standard. We've ticked this box over here. And so it's our trump card against everybody else around us. And it's also our get-out-of-jail-free card that we use to give us a pass on all the other little sins that we want to cultivate. And so now where are we? Well, we're just right back in Romans 1 and 2. It's all in Romans. All of it. This is the problem. This is who we are apart from grace. These are the three people that you'll meet. These are the three people you're inclined to be usually some mixture. It's always a mix, but you do tend to one of the three. So which is it? You know which one it is. And if you don't, ask your wife, ask your husband. This is what it looks and feels like to live under the law. It's not alive, it's not free. It's dead. It's enslaved. It's trapped in an abusive marriage to a horrible, manipulative taskmaster that you can never live up to and please. That's what it is. This has to do with absolutely everything. This is the whole ballgame. It has to do with how you understand God in his relationship to you. It has to do with how you understand yourself. It has to understand with how you live. It has to understand with how you relate to your husband, to your wife, to your kids, to your boss, to your employees or subordinates at work. It's everything. It's all here. Are you under law or are you under grace? There's only one way to be free, truly free. There's only one way to bring peace and joy to your home. There's only one way to live in such a way that you don't have to fear the world. And it's to live under the free reign of God's grace. That's it. As dead to sin and alive to God. 
And that's why he comes at you three different times in three different ways and says, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. Old master, new master. Old covenant, old bad marriage, dead, new. Get it in your heads and get it in your hearts. You have been united with God through a new covenant in Christ's blood. If you truly belong to God, grace is free. It's easy. The law is a heavy yoke. Jesus' yoke is easy and his burden is light. There's freedom and peace and forgiveness because under grace, love is free. It doesn't come at a cost and it's not punitive. It's not punishing. It's just free and alive. Law kills, grace produces life. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. God's law reflects God's character. God's laws tell us about the lawgiver. They restrain evil and they reveal our sin. Is the law bad? No. No, we are. We're bad. Law is not the problem, actually. We're the problem. The law shows us who God is. It shows us who we are, and that's why it condemns us. But the law can only diagnose us at this point. It can offer us no cure. There is no fix. It just says, stage five cancer. And that's all it can say. There's a world of preachers out there that don't want to diagnose any problems, right? Everybody's walking around with stage five cancer and, you know, lung cancer. And they're like, well, here's some cough drops. This lollipop, you know, lick it. And, you know, maybe you won't cough so much. And I don't know if you jump up and click your heels, you know, maybe the phlegm will just sort of, you know, and then you won't have to cough so much. No diagnosis whatsoever. And so there's nothing to cure. There's no sin. There's no judgment. There's no problems. Grace is cheap and easy. All we need is some cough drops to get along with our lives. And there's another world of preachers who are really good at diagnosing problems, but they're long on diagnosis and they are short on cure. They see the problems, but they don't believe in grace. They don't have hope. They're like the law. The law is helpful and good, but to a sinner who has no power to obey and overcome his sin, it's just death. It's just guilt. It's just condemnation. It's just fear. It's just manipulation. What good is a doctor who's good at diagnosis who has no cure? You have stage five cancer. Okay, what do I do? You have stage five cancer. Okay, what do I do? Well, you need to understand you have stage five cancer. Everybody has stage five cancer. Okay. What do I do? You have to understand you have stage five cancer. It's a bad doctor. It's a bad doctor. A bad doctor. He does no good. Maybe marginally better than here's your cough drop. But what's he telling you? He's telling you there's no hope. Not really. Just come to terms with, with stage five cancer. And that's not the gospel. That is not the good news. 
It's not enough. So there's the law, we avoid it, and here comes the cycle again. We see the law, we rebel, we silence our consciences, we get exposed in our hypocrisy, so we try to judge others and say at least we're not like them until we give up and we just become rebels again, and that's all the law leads us, leaves us with. Endless cycles of binge and purge. Endless cycles of guilt and abstinence fueled by bitter, impotent rage. Because it's not easy. We don't measure up and we're powerless. What can we do? The law just says, God's perfect, you're not, nothing you can do about it. And you just keep running through the cycles your whole life, trying to cope. If this is your life, if you keep going through these cycles of rebellion, followed by cover it up, followed by hide it, hypocrisy, followed by now I feel like I've done such a good job of covering it up and pushing it down and hiding it that I'm better than everybody else until I blow up again. You're living under the law. You're living under sin. You're not living under God's grace. You have not gotten this down inside of you. And listen, this is what we all do on some level or another, and that's why we have to keep coming back to it and keep preaching it to ourselves and keep reminding ourselves we were dead. Now we're alive. We were slaves, now we're free. We're under this old covenant of if then, no more. We're under grace. All that's being proven over and over again if you're caught in these loops is you can't do it, you can't measure up, you need grace, but grace shows up. And grace agrees with the law. Law is in fact the servant of grace. Grace shows up and says, yeah, the law's right. It's right. It's right. You can't do it. You can't measure up. And if by the Spirit of God, the law does its good work, the law will leave you left with nothing except saying, grace, please, mercy. It will drive you to grace. And grace says, what you could never do, God did. You couldn't live a perfect life of obedience. Jesus came and was born and did that. You couldn't bear the guilt and the punishment on your own. Jesus did that too. Crucified, dead, and buried. And then he rose from the dead, triumphant over all of your sin, so that you could be united with him in his death and raised to newness of life, so that you can be set free from the tyranny of law and sin, from the tyranny of guilt and condemnation, so you can be a slave to righteousness, so that you can be freed of the old covenant, the covenant of works of if then, no more if-thens in your relationship with God. No conditions. They've all been met in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you are loved and forgiven by your Father in heaven. 
and there is only grace. And you're under the reign of God's grace. When you come to stand before God one day, you will have two choices. It will either be what I did or it will be what Jesus did. That's it. That's it. Look what I've done is not going to go well for you. But look what Jesus did. It's everything. That's it. It's all you need. This is what baptism represents. Some of you need to come to Jesus and repent of your sins. And you need to escape the tyranny of the law. You need to die with Jesus and you need to be united with him in his death by faith. You need to be raised to newness of life. And if you've not been baptized, you need to come and we'll take you over to the pool and we'll baptize you. Give your sins to Jesus. Receive the free grace of God and begin to live free. Live under the reign of grace. That's it, two reigns, sin and death, the reign of grace. Live dead to sin and alive to God, crucified with Christ, buried with him in death, free from sin, a slave to righteousness, dead to the old covenant, born again into a new covenant with a new Lord and a new master, with a Father in heaven who loves you, with a Savior who bled for you, with a Spirit who leads and guides you into newness of life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we come to you and we recognize that we, all of us, live as under the law. Whether or not you have freed us from it, we return to it. We give ourselves to endless cycles of rebellion and hypocrisy and self-righteousness. We allow our lives and our homes to be ruled by sin, by guilt, by fear and shame. We pray, Father, this morning, I pray that you would free us and that you would help us to embrace the freedom that we have in Christ that you would help us to consider ourselves as dead to sin and alive to you. That you would help us get that truth that you have fundamentally changed and transformed us deep into our bones and that we would embrace that reality and that we would put our sin to death. And if there are those here who've never been changed by you, I pray that you would send your spirit and transform their hearts and lives now. So that they can know the freedom that is available in Christ under the reign of grace. So that their lives and their homes can be transformed by you. Help us all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.